The sound of the Amis tribe on Radio Taiwan International. Nine pilots from Taiwan's national carrier, China Airlines, have tested positive for COVID-19. The airline is moving forward quickly with vaccinations. Also, world leaders and lawmakers have started a hashtag Let Taiwan Help campaign to help Taiwan attend the World Health Assembly. More on that in today's show. Also, what's it like to be a pop star in Taiwan these days? Leslie Liao talks with singer Janice Yen, who gives us an inside look at stardom in the age of social media. And would students in Taiwan want to be a pop star? We asked some to tell us about their ideal job. I'm Natalie So. And I'm Andrew Ryan. And this is Taiwan Insider. This past week, Taiwan saw the first domestic cases of COVID-19 in more than two months. And most of those cases are actually family members of China Airlines pilots. Right. And here's how those cases emerged and what the airlines is doing about it. A string of COVID-19 cases involving 10 China Airlines cargo pilots emerged this week. The 10 pilots include two Indonesian pilots who visited a mosque together in Taipei, two Taiwanese pilots who flew to the U.S. together, and six other Taiwanese pilots. It all began when one of the Indonesian pilots tested positive on April 20th while in Australia. It's not clear whether the cases are all connected. The Central Epidemic Command Center has since conducted COVID-19 tests on all of China Airlines' 1,279 pilots. Taiwan is monitoring the contacts of the pilots with COVID-19. It's also working on vaccinating all of China Airlines pilots as soon as possible. In addition to the pilots, some family members have been infected and an employee at the hotel where the pilots were staying. That hotel has been evacuated. Now, we also learned this past week that Taiwan is planning to shorten the length of quarantine for people who have been vaccinated. So who's eligible? We're going to tell you all about it in today's Taiwan Explained. The 14-day quarantine period for people entering Taiwan could soon be shortened to seven days. That's a big difference. Mm. I think uh, more people are going to start traveling, right? I hope so, yeah. And but, getting vaccines, too. Right. So um, here's what we know so far. The shorter quarantine could begin as early as mid-May. You must be fully vaccinated a month before arrival to be eligible. Now, as you can imagine, this is also going to involve a lot of tests just to make sure everyone is safe. You'll need to test negative for COVID before your flight, and then again on day seven of your quarantine before you can leave. You'll also need to get an antibody test in Taiwan. This is a trial program, so they're going to start with a limited number of people. We hope it works out. Absolutely, because yeah. if this does work out, maybe they'll even you know, reduce it or shorten it even more. So up next in Hashtag Taiwan, Leslie Liao is going to tell us about a campaign that's trying to get the world to know that Taiwan can help. Janice Yin is a singer who rose to popularity with this single called Might As Well. 
，就算你想放弃也可以，失去也可以。Her songs have millions of views on YouTube. She's released two studio albums, and she's been named one of ten artists of the year by KKBox. But her breakout moment came when she won the popular singing competition Million Star. She makes it look easy, but recently I sat down with her to figure out what it was like to be a star in the age of social media. She tells us it's not as much about the music as you might think. I entered the business because I liked music,、yeah. you know, and my my sole purpose was just to sing. Yeah. But then I feel like in order to have a place to perform, you've got to be known first, right?、Mm-hmm. So there's so many. Things you gotta do in order to be a singer. So like a lot of it is because I, I have a podcast. Jiggle, I got it. That's right. Right. So I interview a lot of、uh, singers and YouTubers, influencers, whatnot. I spoke to a lot of newer singers, and a lot of them off camera actually too said that they entered the business because they like to sing,、mm-hmm. right? And they thought being a singer would be like you know ninety percent singing, ten ten percent interviews and publicity stuff. Not the case. It's ten percent singing and ninety percent non-musical related work. It's literally in your in your title. You're a musician, like, right? How is that only ten percent of your job? Yeah, you get to sing ten percent of the time. Ninety percent of the time, you're on variety shows,、mm-hmm. you're on talk shows, you're filming for another brand, or you're like you're you're just doing anything else. Everything else that's not singing. Now we're inundated with all these like these TikTok,、yeah. SoundCloud, YouTube. Uh, uh, Like these mu- these musicians,、mm-hmm. um, and I don't know if you have turned to any of those resources,、mm-hmm. but you still have like a traditional la- record label.、Mm-hmm. So can you just comment about how what's it what's it like to see things change? Right,、um, I think it's good. It's a good change.、Mm-hmm. Um, back when I was doing the Million Star competition.、Uh, I felt like most of the Taiwanese or local audience, they're very used to the typical balaga、mm. ballads, yeah, right? Yeah. And that that genre of music was like the only genre of music that people wanted to listen to. So most singers, regardless of their personal preference, they were packaged to only do ballad songs,、mm. unless you were like a rock band and you came out as a rock band. But it was quite, it was kind of like my first album, you know, like. All the songs are more like ballady. They're more internalized. They're more sad. You know,、um, that's what、um, people grew up listening to,、mm. right? That's like the Taiwanese music culture, maybe like the past thirty years or something. But then with the internet, with YouTube, people are exposed to like a lot more genres of music. A lot of independent artists are coming up with hip hop, R and B. So I feel like people are more acceptable to. A more accepting of more of different varieties of music, which is great because I grew up doing R and B, rock. I grew up listening to Muse,、yeah. Westlife, Christina Aguilera. A、There、lot of、go. yeah. So my for my second album, I had a lot more freedom to do what、uh, resonated with me、um, and what influenced me the most. And I think it's great because you don't really need a huge record label、mm-hmm. per se to like actually put out music.、Right. Anyone can just Put up songs in SoundCloud, YouTube. So obviously there's more competition,、mm-hmm. but I like more competition. Yeah, it's, it's nice. I actually went through like a a long journey of finding myself,、mm-hmm. losing myself, depression,、mm-hmm. and a lot of like internet、um, hate. Yeah, basically, that was a time where I kind of lost my ground a little bit,、mm-hmm. 
and I didn't really know where I belonged because I felt like whatever I did, I got so much hate comments online and whatnot. You know, a lot of artists, mm. I think, uh, struggle with mental health. To overcome uh, what you did mm. while in your position was uh, you beating the odds. Right. And, you know, to maybe some of the aspiring artists out there, what would you say or what would you tell them? Mm. I feel like having a support system is really important. So I moved to Taipei alone. I, don't, I didn't have friends and family here back then. I used to bottle things up a lot. Mm. So whenever I read comments or, you know, all the negativity, I kind of just suck it in and like take it really personal. And I think that's where it started to build up because I, there was no outlet for me to release that negativity. I don't know, it took like a year, a year and a half for me to really process. Mm -hmm. But I think one of my high school friends from Hong Kong actually just asked me a really vital question. So she asked, if I never step on a stage and never sing again, would I be happy for the rest of my life? Mm. Because I was so defeated by the comments and the hate that I forgot why I chose to do this um, to begin with. So after she asked me that, I was like, wait, I knew I wanted to sing since I was like nine. You know, like this is what I want to do forever. And yeah. like, this is like the most important thing. This is what brings me happiness. And I'm like so easily defeated. They, they probably don't really want to target it at you specifically. Yeah. They're just, just jinpansha. I don't know what jinpansha is in English. They're, they're keyboard warriors. Keyboard warriors. They're just, you know, typing for the sake of doing yeah. that. Like they've got their own issues and they're just... They're just lashing out, right? Exactly. So like it took me some time to not take it so personally mm -hmm. because I start to value uh, what I wanted to do more and what meant more to me yeah. which is music you can only you can help yourself yeah but with a support system just to definitely don't bottle it up and like don't be afraid to share your weakness with like mm. your loved ones yeah now i don't know about you guys but i was fascinated by like some of her insight like some of the the answers she gave really ran counter to what i thought oh, yeah, yeah i had no idea that singers spent such little time on music yeah, yeah. <laughs> <No>. well <laughs> actually you know social media for us is a huge part of what we do as well That's like true. i mean i can't even imagine what it's like if you're famous yeah, no, really. I mean, we, don't, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. We have no idea. <laughs> well, pushing the whole relationship, like she said, it's uh, it helps foster creativity, but at the same time, it, it, it can, can be very vicious, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. But uh, I really enjoyed speaking to Janice, and we had a great time. Uh, we spoke for almost half an hour, and the full interview is going to be on YouTube and Facebook. If you'd like to see more of her, go and check it out. Being a singer is probably on a lot of people's wish list for dream job, but just to find out, we asked some young people in Taiwan what they're dreaming about. My dream job would be to be a veterinarian so I can work with animals. So, um, my dream job is to become an interior designer because, uh, first of all, that's my passion. I like designs, and that's what my dad's dream job since he was a kid too. So and he t taught me everything he knows about his line of work ever since I was a kid. My dream job is a travel agent because I can travel the world and travel around Taiwan if I'm a travel agent. My dream job would be game developer because I liked playing games since I was really young, so I would like to one day code my own game. My dream job is to be an international art museum guide because I like art and languages. I would like to share the artworks with others. My dream job is become a comedian because who doesn't like to make other people laugh? 
I want to be a landlord so I can just collect the rent and I can do everything I want. No job, no pressure. My dream job would be to be a zookeeper because I like to work with animals and take care of them. Today's brain game is called Teenage Dreams. <laughs> <laughs> so around a year ago, actually Christmas 2019, uh, there was a big survey of 9,000 teenagers around Taiwan wow. that asked them what their dream job was. And they had to choose from a list and they chose three and uh, they came a result, a list of results. What I want you to do is tell me the top ten. Oh ten. no. Yeah. Cool. So okay. on team number one, well a team of one, we have Natalie and Andrew. Oh, so we are like racing this time. Yeah, yes, we are we're racing, racing this we're time. competing. Okay. Okay. Are you ready? Right. Yes, I think so. Okay, so we're going to have 90 seconds on the clock, starting now. YouTuber. I'll give you that, live streamer. Yeah. Uh, pool boy. Po no, there's no pool boy, <laughs> yeah. Singer. Uh, no singer, no. Influencer. That kind of comes under YouTube, okay. so I'm giving you that. Engineer. And I'll give you AI engineer, yes. Um, Snake charmer. <laughs> no snake charmer, unfortunately. You've been around teenagers for a long time. <laughs> Radio host. Uh, TV no. host. Not the top ten, no. Um, Actress. Actress, no, that's not on there. Uh, how about a... And trompreneur. Oh, is it your turn? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you that. That's okay. business, business owner, yeah. Okay. Uh, salon, hairstyling. Nails. I'll give makeup. you ma makeup artist. Makeup artist, <laughs> I'll give you that. Yeah. Uh, model? Model is not on there, no. Cartographer. Cartographer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, strangely uh, no. <laughs> How about a singer? Did we say singer? Uh, we said singer. Okay, Singers we now. said that. Um, a director. <laughs> director is not on um, there. Uh, a, you uh, could go more conventional as well. Conventional. Okay. Homemaker. Not top ten. Doctor. Doctor is on there, yes. Lawyer. Lawyer's not top ten. <laughs> Designer. Designer, yes, Natalie, you're killing it. Teacher. Okay. Uh, teacher's on there, yes. Oh, wow. um, uh, scooter repairman. Scooter repairman is not on there. <laughs> um, Computer programmer. Computer programmer. Uh, I'm saying right, that's right. time up. Okay. Oh, and man, I'm terrible at this. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wants to go into radio? No, or cartography, apparently. Oh, man. I know. <laughs> what does the world come to? Uh, well... Let's take a look at the at the top ten. So the ones you missed were eSports. So that's an eSports oh, gamer or designer. Oh, how could I forget that? My video gosh. Gamers, yeah, right? video games, yeah. essentially. I can't believe I forgot that. Uh, the next was a chef or a food critic. Oh. Uh, Natalie got live streamer. Andrew got makeup artist. Next was athlete. athlete. Yeah. Mm. Interesting, huh? I mean, it's interesting how the kind of these newer professions are at the top. Right, and there. then the traditional in the bottom. Yeah. And then, well, for fun, let's take a look at the rest of the list of 24 and see what they say. Policeman, wow. scientist, wow. I, uh, house spouse is a short love version that. of yeah. House. <laughs> I said housemaker, which is also gender neutral. Housemaker, well, if I may. You. There you go. <laughs> what, I lo I, what I love is how that comes above lawyer. It's like, <laughs> is, people would rather do that. I, yeah. I would, actually. I'd I mean, rather I'm, be a house spouse. I don't wow, journalist is way down there. I know, but it and, that's, a and list. That's, that's my next favorite point. <laughs> oh, so we're right at the bottom there, number 24. I, I'd be a farmer, for sure. Yeah, farmer, you know, why More not? More than a journalist. Over <laughs> or politician. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel somewhat heartened to see politicians falling. No, we love politicians, right? Well, yes, but also it's quite sad to see us right at the bottom there. <laughs> 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 yeah. Well, there you go. Um, that's today's brain game. I hope you had as much fun as we did.
before we leave, a look at some of the other stories on our radar. Taiwan is sending 150 oxygen concentrators to India in the coming days. That's amid a surge in COVID-19 cases that has left Indian hospitals short of oxygen. Countries around the world are pledging assistance to India, which has the fastest growing caseload in the world. Rain has arrived in Taiwan, helping to alleviate the worst drought here in 56 years. The Water Resources Agency says that after a period of showers on Tuesday alone, Taiwan's reservoirs collected 620,000 cubic meters of rainwater. But the drought is not yet behind us, and the agency says water supplies in central and southern Taiwan remain strained. Vacationers from all over Taiwan have descended on the Penghu Islands, but not all of the tourists are behaving themselves. A number have been caught climbing up the island's beautiful basalt columns to get the perfect photo. Authorities are warning against this. The risk of injury is high, it's bad for the environment, and fines for doing it can reach up to 36,000 US dollars. Hate the idea of pineapple on pizza? Well, I have bad news for you. Here in Taiwan, pineapple is now turning up in another place it probably doesn't belong. I'm talking about zongzi, or rice dumplings, a delicacy associated with the Dragon Boat Festival just over a month away. Zongzi makers in Yunnan County are hoping the added twist will increase sales. Japan's former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe also joined in on the hashtag Freedom Pineapple campaign with a high-profile tweet about how delicious the Taiwanese pineapples look. President Tsai responded by saying that if five aren't enough, she can send more. And finally today, our question of the week. If you could invent the ideal dream job, what would it be? Leslie. Um... I would say it's a content diplomat. Ooh. I was going to say something stupid like laser cadet. <laughs> I'm just putting words together at that point. But when I was writing a hashtag Taiwan this week and I was looking up hashtag let Taiwan help, all I really saw were like politicians using the hashtag. And uh-huh. I thought, you know, it would be really nice to see like influencers, celebrities, like soft power people uh, using the hashtag. And I think this job is what I envision would get some some of them to do that. Diplomat of content. Oh, yeah. you're That's getting there, thinking. actually. Yes, I think so. Natalie? And I would like to start a cultural discovery channel oh. to travel the world and introduce and learn about the fascinating cultures of the world. Love it. Yours are so well thought out. Mine is uh, an acronym that I have to explain. I love my mom. No. Very close. <laughs> if I could make money being an international man of mystery. Oh. <laughs> That would be my dream job. You are the international <laughs> man of mystery. You are. Once you leave and you are making office, money. Stop like, it. What's he doing outside of the office? I don't know. I never know. Riding off into the distance in his go-girl. <laughs> well, if uh, those uh, become ways you can make money, we'll be sure to let you know first here on Taiwan Insider. But for now, we want to thank you for joining us. Uh, be sure to connect with us on social media. Yes, subscribe, like, and leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. For Taiwan Insider, I'm Natalie So. I'm Leslie Liao. And I'm Andrew Ryan. See you next week. Are you listening? <laughs> this is the sound of my country. This is the sound of Taiwan. Okay. 
Taiwan, a small island with a whole world of sounds. Taiwan today with Natalie So. Hello and welcome to Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So. Last year, as the U.S. was about to elect a new president, people in Taiwan were quite nervous about what a Joe Biden presidency might mean for U.S.-Taiwan ties. That's because President Donald Trump had shown support for Taiwan in unprecedented ways, with major arms sales and top officials visiting Taiwan. But the Joe Biden administration has also shown goodwill to Taiwan in many ways since it came to office. Biden invited Taiwan's representative to the United States to attend his inauguration. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has said that U.S. support for Taiwan is rock solid, and the U.S. State Department just recently issued new guidelines for interaction between Taiwan and U.S. officials. These guidelines set new precedents, such as allowing officials to meet in federal buildings and at Taiwan's representative offices. Join me today as I speak with a top U.S. official in Taiwan about the current state of U.S.-Taiwan ties. Raymond Green is the deputy director of the American Institute in Taiwan, the de facto U.S. embassy in Taiwan. And you've been here for three years. How have you enjoyed your time in Taiwan? Oh, it's been tremendous. It's been a real honor. This is actually my second time at AIT. I was here about 20 years ago. Uh, first, I came here to learn Chinese, and so I was. A, so you know what it's like to uh, learn Chinese exactly. here, right? Exactly, and I know what a great uh, opportunity it is. In fact, the State Department, um, we have a our uh, lang Chinese language field school here in Taipei. Uh, it used to be in Yangmingshan, next to um, uh, the Chinese Culture University. Now we've re relocated it to Nehu inside our new building, but. Uh, every year we have about 20 American diplomats uh, who come to Taiwan to learn Chinese. And I think we've found that the ability to learn ta ta Chinese in Taiwan uh, is a really uh, special uh, opportunity because it's such an easy place to get to make friends, to get out and use the language. Um, and, and also, I think for all of our young diplomats, many of them heading off to mainland China uh, or Hong Kong, uh, experiencing a year in Taiwan gives them a better perspective on how we can manage uh, that very complex cross-strait relationship in the mm -hmm. future. So very pleased to see that program going strong and I'm even more pleased to see that we're bringing more and more U.S. government funded programs to Taiwan. Well, that's great. I think uh, Taiwanese appreciate when people learn Chinese, right? They're very friendly and accommodating right. when you practice your Chinese, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's obvious that the U.S. and Taiwan are coming closer together in many ways, people-to-people, mm -hmm. -people, education, and recently we heard the State Department also issued some new guidelines for right, interaction right. between U.S. and Taiwan officials. Mm -hmm. Can you, I know they haven't all been made public, but can right. you tell us what some of the most important aspects of these new guidelines are? Yeah, I think the most important guideline or aspect of the new guidelines is in contrast to previous guidelines, we've had these going back to 1979, but in the past, the focus has been on what you can't do with Taiwan. Mm -hmm. um, the new guidelines up front and the main kind of thrust of the whole um, exercise is what you should be doing with Taiwan. Oh, that's great. Yeah, because the, the guidelines are something that the State Department issues to other agencies of the U.S. government. And so we were uh, very pleased to see the new guidelines mm. come out, and 
particularly the very positive um, tone language. We very much want all agencies of the U.S. government to see mm -hmm. Taiwan as a, a key partner because we think Taiwan has so much to offer, be it on public health or law enforcement uh, or the whole range or education. And so we, we want to encourage other agencies in the U.S. federal government to seek out opportunities to have either a uh, relationship with our counterpart agencies or to work with us on things like the Global Cooperation and Training Framework where the U.S. and Taiwan and Japan come together and provide training for other countries around the world. For example, just last week we did a GCTF workshop on supply chains and how small and medium-sized enterprises can take part in the shifting of supply chains around the world. We had over 200 participants from Europe, Middle East, Asia. Uh, so these kind of programs, I think, are a real opportunity to both showcase what Taiwan is very, um, the expertise that it resides here in Taiwan, but also showcase that the fact that the U.S. and Japan see Taiwan as a key partner to advance our strategic goals in the Indo-Pacific and further afield. So do you envision more, um, you know, exchanges between U.S. and Taiwan officials, more mm -hmm. U.S. official visits to Taiwan and, and vice versa? I think you've already seen that trend right. and that trend will continue. I mean, we have so many new uh, initiatives. Recently we had the U.S.-Taiwan Coast Guard a cooperative, cooperative agreement we announced in March. Last fall, we had a huge, um, I think, breakthrough in the U.S.-Taiwan relationship when we created the Economic uh, Prosperity Partnership Dialogue, which is the first um, senior-level economic dialogue uh, that goes beyond kind of traditional trade issues and covers things like 5G standards and supply chains and investment screening. And so you see a lot of dynamism. You see a lot more substance in the relationship. And so we are very pleased to see um, the number of officials that came last year, including the Secretary of Health and Human Services, our Undersecretary of State for Economic Affairs. And so I think we'll continue to see that trend um, in, in the future. Hopefully once COVID um, starts to um, uh, allow, the conditions surrounding COVID uh, allows a resumption of travel, we'll see more visitors, including members of Congress, because I know there's such huge support in Congress for, for the U.S.-Taiwan relationship. So is this increase of support on the official level um, due to a greater threat from China, you know, uh, whether it's against the U.S. or Taiwan? Is it partly because of China or can you explain the reason for this increased cooperation? I mean, I think there's there always a China factor in anything mm -hmm. in this region, but really I think what's driving this is the fact that uh, we have so many shared interests and shared values with Taiwan. We really see Taiwan as a model that can, we can hold up for other countries around the world. If you look at how Taiwan's um, Im uh, immense success in com combating COVID-19 using free democratic principles, it wasn't a strong arm forcing people to kind of violate their basic rights, but rather it was a, an example of the Taiwan uh, leadership um, putting their faith in medical professionals, getting the public to uh, support uh, very, uh, I think, scientifically based uh, approaches to pandemic response. And it's something really, I think, uh, historians will look back at this crisis, this pandemic, and say there's one place that got it right and that was Taiwan. And that's something I think we should all feel proud of that a democracy uh, was the one that I know uh, China and other countries say, you know, it, it takes a authoritarian state in order to, uh, uh, to ha manage a crisis like this. And Taiwan is the, the perfect counterexample. But that's only one area. If you look at, for example, civil society, LGBT rights, uh, environmental concerns, really Taiwan across the board uh, is a model that I think we'd like to see countries around the world emulate, especially countries that are looking to, um, to move up the development chain. Uh, there is a, there's an alternative to kind of authoritarian economic growth uh, or democratic uh, reforms, and Taiwan is that. Do you think there's a more awareness of Taiwan in the United States because of, you know, how we dealt with COVID or other 
um, issues in the past few years? Because I know a lot of Americans may not even know too much about Taiwan. Right. Certainly, one of the mm -hmm. um, maybe unexpected uh, side effects of COVID is I think, uh, not just the United States, around the world, um, I think the awareness of Taiwan uh, has been increased. I mean, there are literally thousands of international media articles that have been written about Taiwan's success. Um, ironically, I think the Chinese pressure on foreign journalists in Beijing has resulted more major outlets um, coming here, coming right? Here, right? That's so, right. Uh, that's another um, advantage Taiwan has um, kind of achieved from unf unfortunate circumstances. But certainly, I think the awareness of Taiwan, the, the awareness of the success of its society, of its political system, of its economy, uh, coupled with um, just the uh, uh, enormous attention to the semiconductor industry. They, they call semiconductors the oil of the 21st century, and if that's the case, Taiwan uh, is perhaps the Saudi Arabia of the 21st century in terms of its um, importance to the international economic system. So be it on economics, on uh, COVID response, or even in security affairs, given all of the publicity about recent uh, PRC uh, activity around Taiwan, I think the awareness of Taiwan um, is at all-time highs. That is Raymond Green, the deputy director of the de facto U.S. Embassy in Taiwan, the American Institute in Taiwan. It was great to see how positive he was about Taiwan and the U.S.-Taiwan relationship. We talk more about U.S. policy on Taiwan's defense next. Taiwan Today with Natalie So. The sound of the Puyuma tribe on Radio Taiwan International. You're listening to Taiwan Today, and I'm Natalie So. I'm speaking with the Deputy Director of the de facto U.S. Embassy in Taiwan the American Institute in Taiwan, Raymond Green. Now, I asked him about a policy that the U.S. has used for a long time regarding defense of Taiwan, and that's a policy of strategic ambiguity. The U.S. does not like to reveal what it would do if China attacked Taiwan. I'll give you an example. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken recently said that the U.S. is concerned about increased Chinese military activity near Taiwan. He also expressed that the U.S. commitment towards Taiwan is rock solid. But when asked what the U.S. would do if China attacked Taiwan, he said he will not answer a question about a hypothetical situation. So that's how the U.S. deals with that question. And I asked Deputy Director Green if he could explain why they like to use the policy of strategic ambiguity regarding Taiwan's defense. This is what he had to say. Well, our policy really is rooted in the Taiwan Relations Act um, on, on Taiwan security, which talks about how any non-peaceful change in the status quo would be of grave concern um, to the United States. And so uh, it also um, 
requires that the United States government support Taiwan's uh, self-defense capabilities. And that's something we take very seriously and we've continued to abide by. And I think um, we talk a lot about the status quo. Um, and we've seen the, the status quo since 1979 as well, not maybe being perfect for anybody, was to the benefit of all parties. Unfortunately, because of PRC actions recently, uh, that status quo has started to erode. And so now we're looking at how do we maintain that balance? And I think you've seen our uh, stepped up engagement with Taiwan mm -hmm. on the security front. And just uh, since I've arrived three years ago, we've approved something like $17 billion worth of foreign military sales. We support Taiwan's, um, the development of Taiwan's uh, asymmetric defense capabilities, very much in line with President Tsai's um, objectives. But also statements like you saw out of the summit uh, meeting between um, President Biden and Prime Minister Suga, sending a strong message that the international community cares a lot about peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. And so I think that um, we will continue to, to work to maintain that balance to make sure that this area remains peaceful because any conflict would be a disaster for the world. So uh, it's something I think we all share an interest in avoiding. Do you think that we can expect a greater U.S. military presence in this area? Well, you, you're seeing where already we are strengthening our alliances with Japan, with Australia and other partners. Right. And so it, we do think it's important that the United States uh, remain very engaged, in fact, increasingly engaged to, again, maintain that strategic balance. Uh, that Because peace serves everybody, it serves China as well. And so uh, I know the Biden administration is uh, very much focused on um, maintaining our um, commitment to our allies and our partners. So it's great to see how the U.S. and Taiwan, you know, are coming closer together in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. Are there any last words you want to say before we uh, end our interview? I would just appeal for um, the, your, your younger viewers who are thinking about their own careers that uh, look to the United States. I and mean, one of the, I think, the strengths of our, historically, the U.S.-Taiwan relationship is just the number of young Taiwanese who've gone to the United States for college, graduate school. The door remains open. Uh, we are very much uh, welcome. Um, uh, people from Taiwan to study, to go work in the United States, to gain that experience, because uh, that really is the the bond or the glue that keeps our two peoples together is those people-to-people -people ties. And we'll, we'll work on our side to bring more Americans to Taiwan, but I would encourage uh, young Taiwanese to see uh, uh, the United States as an opportunity to advance their careers, but also widen their, uh, their horizons in terms of uh, the, the world. So. That's great. We hope to see more Americans here in Taiwan and more exchanges between U.S. and Taiwanese uh, officials and peoples. It's great that that's happening. Thank you so much, Ray, right. for Thanks all so that much, you're Natalie. doing yeah. in helping the two countries come together. I've been speaking with Ray Green. He's the deputy director of the American Institute in Taiwan, the de facto U.S. Embassy in Taiwan. your science and tech news, it's Stash Butler with The Download.
Welcome to The Download, a brand new show from Radio Taiwan International, covering all the latest developments in science and technology. I'm your host, Stash Butler, and I'll be taking you through everything you need to know. Today, I'm speaking to Dr. Lin Peiyang, the founder of Earthquake Early Warning System company, P-Waver. He tells me how his technology is saving lives and saving money for Taiwan's semiconductor industry. All that, coming up on The Download. In the past 10 years, I worked a lot building the earthquake early warning system for the schools. And then I built a hybrid earthquake early warning system for industry. And we have some uh, application in the semiconductor companies and because they care a lot about a not so big earthquake. Getting on to that point, you talk about companies like TSMC. So what risks do earthquakes pose to those companies in particular? Okay, because they have a lot of mm, scanners, very sensitive scanners. So any small vibration will make some defect. So every year, maybe um, three to five times, there will happen some earthquake, not so big. But the machine will be shut down and they need to recalibrate. So it takes a lot of time, maybe eight hours, 10 hours. 10 hours of lost means much for TSMC. We can provide the earthquake early warning. That means before the shake coming, maybe I can only provide five or 10 seconds of window. I will tell them and they can control the scanner to soft stop, okay? Not emergency stop. So they can reopen very quickly, maybe 15 minutes. So from 10 hours to 15 minutes is a very huge difference. It's based, you talk about sort of artificial intelligence, sort of predicting the size of an earthquake within one to three seconds of it starting. I mean, is that right? How does, how does right. that work? Our system is very special because all around the world, the earthquake early warning typically is done by government. So they always have a seismic network and the network will capture the earthquake and they determine the earthquake magnitude location and the effect to all the country. But for industry, they need more. For this kind of national size, they need some time to do some collecting the data. And then the signal can be sent to my mobile phone. It's okay, good. But for TSMC, if I send a signal from outside and then I stop their machine, oh, that is very dangerous. IT guy will never allow to do that. So they need a private system. A private system like, okay, everything, everything inside their factory. They have sensors. They will detect the first vibration come from the earthquake. We need to predict the following coming earthquake is huge one, how huge? Because the size matters. If the size is big enough, the machine should be stopped. If size is not so big, no, because I will lost. 15 minutes, that's mean a lot of money. You train this system on, on kind of past data from earthquakes, is that right? Yeah, we collect about uh, 20 years of data. So we have about 300,000 of seismic data from small to high. We collect all the data the first three seconds. We use that as input. And every earthquake, they have intensity. Okay, that is output. So we training with this of database and then every time 
we have a new earthquake, we detect the first three P wave, and then we will do the prediction. So you're saying you, you, you worked with schools before? Sorry, I, I missed Oh yeah, yeah. because uh, from 2013, we start to build the earthquake early warning system for the schools. We build a demo site, and this demo site really detect earthquake, and automatically start a, a broadcast system, and students evacuate immediately. So everybody knows, okay, this system is really works. And two mothers in the elementary school, they take the video <laughs> by their cell phone. So they are on the television, on the news. So everybody knows that. So the government say, okay, this is really works. So we got to spread the service to all the school. So what is the next step for P-Waver? For P-Waver, we have two main jobs. The one is for the semiconductor companies. Another thing is that, okay, you know, in Taiwan, in Japan, yeah, we have this kind of early warning system, but not in New Zealand, not in Philippines, Indonesia, even United States, California. For example, for New Zealand, for Japan, they need 1,000 stations. How about New Zealand? Maybe 1,000. But New Zealand is uh, plenty of land, few of people. If you want, want to wait for the government to build a 1,000 station, it takes years. But now, P-Waiver provides an alternative because we can provide one system and the system can prediction of the following coming earthquake for the whole city. And also, we will cooperate with the company from the Taiwan because that kind of company can shut the gas. They can stop the elevator. They can do a lot of evacuation light. So we cooperate together, we make a Taiwan team. So from the sensor to professor, we can join together. We can provide a total solution, one-stop shop. Getting onto that idea of integration, people are talking a lot about things like smart cities, right? These ideas that we have, you know, cities that are, everything is connected by 4G or 5G. Uh, how does P-Waver fit into that vision of the future? Okay, for the smart city, we said, okay, we can provide one thing, smart disaster prevention. A smart city means that, okay, you can detect the earthquake before people know, help people to take shelters, protect their life. And the other thing is that you can do a lot of things smart and automatically. You should shut the gas automatically, right? You should open the door automatically. And another thing is that, yeah, after the shake, we people say, oh, this, is the structure is safe or not? If one building had a lot of sensors and integrate with some computation, and you can provide you the answer, the structure is safe or not, in 10 minutes, you will get a report to tell you that the structure is safe, so you can go back to the office. Historically, before we had kind of technology, advanced technology like yours, we couldn't predict earthquakes, really, could we? Maybe we, we don't say predict the earthquake because earthquakes happen. So we can get seconds of time, but only second or 10 seconds or thousand seconds of time. But we cannot predict the earthquake is happen or not happen. Mm. Maybe t uh, 10 days later, they will have earthquake. No, we, we can do not do that. <laughs> mm. So where is the limit? I mean, this is the, I guess this is my question. I think uh, the limit is that we only can detect the earthquake after it happened. So if my site is very close to the epicenter, too close, maybe 10 kilometers, that means earthquake happened and the destructive wave will strike you two or three seconds later. I, I think that's the limit.
But if it is about thirty kilometer away, yeah, you should have some time. So you say, I mean, let's take、uh, a distance of you said thirty kilometers.、Mm. So in that distance, how much、about、time? About five seconds. I can give someone five seconds. How much bigger do you think you can make that number? Yeah, I think.、Uh, yes, we still have some some region to improve because I use the three seconds of time to do the prediction. Some people can do in only one second, but that is the limitation. One second, okay, maybe eighty percent of accuracy. Three seconds, maybe nine eight ninety eight percent. Right, so it's kind of a trade-off between accuracy and yeah, speed. Yeah, yeah. Where we are now in Taiwan, is Taiwan ready for its next big earthquake? Yeah, I think that for the earthquake early warning, yes, the infrastructure is ready, but only some people got the warning through the some kind of alarm systems. For the school, yes, all the school have that, but not every home have that, not every building have that. But another big deal is that. The building structure is very very old, and it's a private building. It's not easy to be retrofit, so it's a social <laughs> social problem, not economy problem. That was Dr. Lin Peiyang, founder of earthquake early warning company P Waiver, and that's all we have time for this week. Next week, I'll be speaking to a company transforming agriculture in Taiwan. That's next week with me, Stash Butler, on the download. Janice Yen is a singer who rose to popularity with this single called "Might as Well." Her songs have millions of views on YouTube. She's released two studio albums, and she's been named one of ten artists of the year by KKBox. But her breakout moment came when she won the popular singing competition Million Star. She makes it look easy, but recently I sat down with her to figure out what it was like to be a star in the age of social media. She tells us it's not as much about the music as you might think. I entered the business because I liked music,、yeah. you know, and my my sole purpose was just to sing. Yeah. But then I feel like in order to have a place to perform, you've got to be known first, right?、Mm-hmm. So there's so many. Things you gotta do in order to be a singer. So like a lot of is because I have a podcast. Check it out, y'all. That's right. Right. So I interview a lot of、uh, singers and YouTubers, influencers, whatnot. I spoke to a lot of newer singers, and a lot of them off camera actually too said that they entered the business because they like to sing,、mm-hmm. right? And they thought being a singer would be like you know ninety percent singing, ten ten percent interviews and publicity stuff. Not the case. It's ten percent singing and ninety percent non-musical related work. It's literally in your in your title. You're a musician, like, right? How is that only ten percent of your job? Yeah, you get to sing ten percent of the time. Ninety percent of the time, you're on variety shows,、mm-hmm. you're on talk shows, you're filming for another brand, or you're like you're you're just doing anything else. Everything else that's not singing. Now we're inundated with all these like these TikTok,、yeah. SoundCloud, YouTube. Uh, uh, Like these mu- these musicians,、mm-hmm. um, and I don't know if you have turned to any of those resources,、mm-hmm. but you still have like a traditional la- record label.、Mm-hmm. So can you just comment about how what's it what's it like to see things change? Right,、um, I think it's good. It's a good change.、Mm-hmm. Um, back when I was doing the Million Star competition.、Uh, 
I felt like most of the Taiwanese or local audience, they're very used to the typical balaga mm. ballads, yeah, right? Yeah. And that that genre of music was like the only genre of music that people wanted to listen to. So most singers, regardless of their personal preference, they were packaged to only do ballad songs, mm. unless you were like a rock band and you came out as a rock band. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC, on 9405 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC, on 9405 kHz. And in Southeast Asia, from 0300 to 0400 UTC, on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.